When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Car Stuff. My name is Scott. And my name is Ben. Hey, Ben. What's going on? Not much, man. I uh, have to ask you, have you ever owned a high-performance car? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, I had a uh, – my very first car was a Pontiac Trans Am that was from 1978. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could call it high-performance in its time. Now when I look back, performance wasn't all that great um, for what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I don't know. I, I hope that uh, that Chrysler I'm building is going to be awful fast. Yeah. And I've had is. some fast import cars that, you know, I've tuned to be fast. Sure. But um, no, I've never really had like a, you know, like a Corvette or something like that or a Ferrari or anything that I would consider ultra high performance. How about you? Uh, not yet. Not I, yet. I've decided as a personal change in my life to try to avoid saying no and just start saying not yet. No. There's okay. some things I still have to say no to, of Mid-life course. crisis? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I'm trying to get – I'm actually preempting the midlife crisis. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and get it out of the way in my late say, 20s. You're, you're, pretty, you're pretty young, so uh, that's yeah. not a very optimistic outlook. Yeah, well, I'm a go-getter. What can I say? <laughs> but um, 40, re- that's, a, that's a pretty good run, 40-something. Yeah. The, the reason I'm asking about high-performance vehicles is because today we are talking about Jaguar racing history. Ah, uh, yes, Jaguar. 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 And uh, one of the things that is – fascinating about this uh, is during the racing uh, events that we're going to talk about through this podcast, there are a number of privately owned uh, sort of souped up Jaguars Mm -hmm. that show up in the races Mm -hmm. and sometimes racing against the actual – The factory. uh, Yeah. Yeah, sure. That happens even now. Um, You find that uh, privateer teams take over some of the cars that are successful Mm -hmm. and say, I'd like to field that vehicle. And, you know, they have less money typically. Mm -hmm. Not always. Typically they do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's tough to go against the factory teams because you've got the in-house development, uh, you know, 
helping that effort along. And you see that even now. But um, yeah, in the early days of Jaguar racing, uh, you're going to find that um, you know there were privateer teams fielding cars against the factory teams, but the factory teams were so darn successful. Yes, uh, really absolutely. successful. And you know, I I think maybe we should do just a, a brief. Uh, from the beginning type history, if that's all right with you. Absolutely. And, um, so that people know where Jaguar came from and how long it's been around and, Ooh. you know, just that. And we'll get into the racing history beginning in, um, must I just give it away? 1950s? Yeah, 1950s. 1950s. We'll keep it at that and then, uh, you know, kind of let you in on what, what happened then because that was really the, uh, well, that was the peak. Mm-hmm. Of of Jaguar's racing history, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I I'll go with you on that. I I mean, their first uh, sporting uh, traditions, I guess we'd say, mm-hmm. go go a little bit pre-war. Mm-hmm. But uh, well, that's you know what we're giving just spoilers left and right. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. All right, so. the very beginning. All right, so we've got a, a guy here. His name is uh, William Lyons or Bill. Bill, yeah, but you know you wouldn't call him Bill later in life because he was knighted eventually. So he's he actually yes. became Sir William Lyons mm-hmm. uh, at some point, and a friend of his, actually a neighbor named William Walmsley, Walmsley. That's it, Walmsley. Walmsley that's yeah, probably that's a better right. way to say it. And um, you know, this is now William Lyons was born in 1901, I believe, mm-hmm. and by 1922, when he was just 21 years old, he paired up with this guy, his neighbor again, William. Uh, another William, mm-hmm. who um, uh, was building motorcycle sidecars. It's kind mm-hmm. of like a side business. It was just something that they were doing on the on the side, and they formed together to. And of course, you know uh, William Lyons. He was interested in engineering from the very beginning. Had kind of an aptitude for that. Absolutely. Uh, so they formed together a company that they called the Swallow Sidecar Company. And this was in Blackpool, just mm-hmm. for the record. They, oh, yeah. they were also. Uh, these swallows, as they were called, uh, you can look at them as prototypical jaguars, you know, because they didn't have the name. I think so, yeah. But it was the same. It was the the guy making them. Now we say swallow sidecar, and mm-hmm. they built sidecars. But you got to remember that eventually they came to start making cars. Yeah, and, and that's uh, that's very important because mm-hmm. that kind of dictates the very early days of jaguar. Right. So if you're hunting the first jaguar, you're looking. Uh, from about 1927 on, right when they started using Austin Seven chassis. Correct. Yeah, and here you go again, Austin Seven. Yeah. You remember we talked about this? We talked yes. about this with uh, with Chapman, uh, you know, Colin Chapman, Colin yep. Chapman for Lotus, and what was the other one? I'll think of it as we go in here. But, uh, uh, um, it's going to pop up. Someone else was using modified mm-hmm. Austin Sevens. That seems again. I said it before. I'll say it again. It's the. Uh, it seems to be the car to kind of tinker with and toy with and make mm-hmm. it your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you got the Swallow Sidecar Company now making automobiles and it wasn't until uh, about 1945 that it was in early 1945 when Jaguar Cars Limited was formed. Mm-hmm. So now you've got um, the official beginning of, of what we call Jaguar. If you want to trace it back to 22, you can, but 1945 is the beginning of Jaguar. Of actual Jaguar. It, exactly. Yeah. You can find a car branded as a Jaguar. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Now, <laughs> we've got a bunch of people um, along the way that uh, kind of – this is according to the Jaguar site. You can go to Jaguar USA and get the same information here about the uh, the people mm-hmm. kind of behind uh, the development of Jaguar. And uh, quickly, if you, if you don't mind, I'll go through yeah. the list fast. Absolutely. Um, they call it the men behind the mark and there's really six instrumental men in the history of, of Jaguar and I'm sure – you know. 
okay, there's women also. There's also other men that are instrumental mm-hmm. as well. But uh, these are the six that they uh, they point out as being kind of standouts in the history. Of course, there's the founder, uh, Sir William Lyons. And uh, there's Norman Dewis, who is the uh, the creator of what they call the Jaguar Experience. And it, his job was to uh, develop how the car feels, what it feels like to drive a Jaguar, and to make every vehicle uh, a part of that Jaguar experience. Mm-hmm. Um, not a bad job, huh? That's a pretty sweet yeah, job. It would actually. be a pretty sweet job. That's kind of yeah. like uh, that's like kind of like candy tester. Yeah, exactly. He was uh, he was um, well, he was what ten years. He was uh, I'm sorry. He spent 36 years doing this, mm-hmm. and um, you know he also uh, one one of the note about this guy. He also helped develop the disc brake uh, with Dunlop. So remember how disc brakes came from. Yeah, from Dunlop, well, from, yeah. from Jaguar. This is the guy, Norman Dewis, at, along with Dunlop, who helped develop the disc brake. And in fact, this guy, you know, right up to the end, said that this is his uh, his crowning achievement. Is because it, you know, it's such a safety device that you know it's now employed on every vehicle. Really, sure, yeah. Um, it's hard to buy a car without disc brakes. I don't know if you could even find one with front drums anymore. anymore. Yeah, you you might be able to find at least in this country a used car. That has drum brakes on one set or one set of tires. Yeah, maybe the rear. Yeah, maybe the rear. I had an Oldsmobile that had that, but mm-hmm. you're not going to find all drum brakes. Well, you go back. Yeah. I'm like my Chrysler has all drum brakes. Yeah, but that's going way back. You're talking 45 years. Yeah, that's a deep cut. That's, that's a that's a long back. time ago. So now, I mean, recently, if you're yeah, overall, you're going to find mostly disc brakes. Mm-hmm. All right, then there's the uh, oh here we go. Here's the guy who uh, really they call the mastermind behind Jaguar's racing success. What's his name? Lofty England, and you know why they call him Lofty? I was okay. Yeah, break this down for me. I heard a couple different things. Why? <laughs> because he was six foot five, Ben. He's a big guy, <laughs> and he, not what you would expect to uh, cram into a tiny little race car, right? Right, right. A right. six foot five gentleman who they called Lofty uh, was an engineer, actually service manager with Jaguar. Mm-hmm. who um, kind of masterminded this whole thing of, of Jaguar racing in the 1950s. And, um, well, eventually, I mean, if you want to go way down the road, he eventually took over uh, the role as chairman from Lyons when he retired in 1972. Right. And this guy's full name, of course, Lofty is not his given Christian name. His no. full name is Frank Raymond Wilton England. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to say Lofty's a pretty cool nickname, but uh, – Frank Raymond Wilton is also pretty pretty classy. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah, classy, and, but Lofty is kind of a cool name, especially yeah. for a big, tall guy like that. It makes sense. Yeah, I could. <laughs> it's funny because I had heard a couple stories about why he was named Lofty. <laughs> I can and, imagine. And they seemed uh, speculative, let's put it that way. Sure. Okay. okay. Well, according to Jaguar, it was because of his height, mm-hmm. uh, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, and you know what? I'm going to mention a couple others here just because yeah. – but we want to go back to the racing success. So remember Lofty England, OK? Right. He's, He's instrumental. Not a hard name to remember really when you think about yeah. it. Uh, OK. Let's mention uh, Malcolm Sayer who was uh, the aerodynamics specialist. And uh, this is huge mm-hmm. for Jaguar because as we'll find out when we talk about racing, aerodynamics were key to Jaguar's success. Yes. And um, he came from uh, the Bristol Airplane Company, which makes sense as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually developed and shaped the vehicles that uh, Jaguar would eventually use, you know, the, the streamlining that they used to uh, to become victorious in all these, these well, world-renowned racing events. Um, I've only got two more, I promise. Oh, wait, is <laughs> is uh, can I do a guess? Yeah. Is one of them Walter Hassan? No. No? Okay. No. I just want to... 
I just want to uh, mention him. He's an experimental departmental engineer. Oh, okay. So, Ex- you know what? Experimental, that's got to be huge during this time because yeah. they're, they're – well, they're forging new uh, new ground here because mm-hmm. um, it like, the 1950s, it was all new to them really. Mm-hmm. The company being founded in 45 and then to take on Le Mans so early in the 1950s, incredible. Now, now uh, Hassan left uh, right around – See, he went to Coventry Climax mm-hmm. in 1949. So okay, he he may have just missed. It oh too. yeah, he yeah. just missed the opportunity for yeah. the uh, for the racing program. Kind of like Pete Best and the Beatles. Yeah, know? yeah, just <laughs> by that much. Ouch. All right. Uh, so there's. I've also got William Haynes. Yes. Uh, who was an engineer and actually engineered the C type, D type, and E type. Uh, all the hits. He, yep, all the good ones. Also developed the. This is interesting. Developed the XK Straight Six during the World War II uh, nighttime fire watches, which were held at the Jaguar plant during World War II. So, uh, you know, they got this skeleton crew of employees and people that kind of hang around and make sure that uh, things are staying buttoned up around there mm-hmm. during World War II. And, and, you thought, uh, and you thought our job was stressful. And, and this is a guy, he, here he is design, designing an engine at this time. And in fact, uh, you know, an incredible engine, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Straight Six, the, the, um, yeah. Mr. Haynes designed, and then the last one I've got is uh, Ian Callum, and he is the uh, the current uh, design director for Jaguar, and he's currently working on. He's um, under him. They've designed the XK, the XF, the XJ. So um, that's the current fella in control of uh, design <laughs> over there. And um, like I said, I want to go back to Lofty because Lofty is the one in the 1950s who really brought about Jaguar's racing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I'll be honest, Ben. Looking at, looking back at this, and I'll I'll stop talking a minute no and let you finally get a, get a word. Oh, sure. Um, but honestly, the, their racing history is relatively confined to the nineteen nineteen fifties, and mm. then there's a, a a big lag in time there. Yeah, there's there's definitely a gap after this. Now, to paraphrase Van Morrison, cast your memory back there. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, so we'll go back to uh, Bill Haynes uh, and they're checking out Le Mans in 1950. Okay. Right? And so in this race, uh, they see three privately owned XK120s competing. Mm-hmm. Now, these cars are uh, – the, their performance added with the fact that no one had really messed with – an good aerodynamic shape for a car um, convinced them that the uh, the, there were a couple of design improvements they could make, right? Mm -hmm. And the way that they saw the opposition uh, in this race and the way that they saw the privately owned Jaguars performing convinced the guys that if they – made an aerodynamically shaped body meaning if they if they designed the chassis or excuse me the the outer shell to move sort of with the wind and reduce the friction that they could literally change the racing game and what's more if they could do it by 1951 they just might win the race see that's the incredible part yeah. how do you go about redesigning a vehicle within a year and then competing in one of the top races in the world mm-hmm. really one of the top endurance races in the world this is this is remarkable because um in 19 you want me to just yeah, yeah. tell them what the what the the, uh, the record was here because yes. the, in as far as this is out this is victories at Le Mans 
Mm-hmm. They had five victories in the 1950s in Jaguar vehicles. The factory teams did. Mm-hmm. Uh, the C-Type took the victory in 1951. So we're talking first year out, Ben. Yeah. And in 1953. And then we'll talk about the D-Type in a moment, but I won in 55, 56, and 57 also. Nope. So um, for the 1950s, Jaguar dominated uh, the endurance car circuit at Le Mans. Absolutely. No ifs, ands, and buts. We should also point out that they had a little bit less than a year of building, actually, because they had to spend some time persuading Sir William. Mm-hmm. I think this may have been – this was before he was knighted. Yeah. So he's I Bill. I would think so. Yeah. yeah so, at, the, at the time, he's Bill, the engineer. Yeah. So they were – they had to spend some time persuading him that this was A, doable, and B, worth doing. Oh, sure. Um, and in 1951 – I'm not taking away from any of the cachet that comes with winning a race the year after you got the idea mm-hmm. for uh, for the key to, to winning. Um, there were three C-types in the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, our guys won. Um, and let's see. I believe that one was driven by Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead. OK. So it's funny because we've got two Peters. we got – uh, a couple of Williams. A couple of Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll there's probably we... other, some, some other doubled mm-hmm. up on names mm-hmm. here pretty soon. I'd make everything more confusing for us. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> two years, two years later, they've got the, uh, not only do they finish first, a C-type finishes first. In 53. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Another C-type finishes second and another C-type finishes fourth. Amazing. It's so weird. Amazing. A one, two, four finish. Mm-hmm. All right. And then, uh, but as we move on to 1955, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Do you want to say anything more about the C type? Because I, I, I've got a couple of quick things here that we can mention is that, you know, there are only 54 of these cars ever built. Oh, yeah. We and, should totally uh, and, that. and this is crazy. A zero to 60 time high of this vehicle. This is a race car that won Le Mans. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how much, I guess zero to 60 is important, but I think just durability and, and top speed are important. Yeah. Zero to 60 time. Eight seconds, Ben. Which is not so impressive now. No, not now. Yeah. That's the thing. Like you look back at this and you think like, well, geez, what a dog. But you know what? Honestly, the, I mean, it's a little <laughs> lightweight car that, that's mm-hmm. very aerodynamic. The top speed was only 149, which a lot of road cars will do now. Right. Um, you know, I I don't know. I don't think my – no, my Honda won't do that. But you're – your uh, Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo might. It well, might be maxed out at that, or electronically limited to that, or something close to that. It, it'll it'll max out at that. I I guess the best way for me to say it, without trying to dog my own car, is that theoretically, <laughs> it is capable of. Achieving I understood. That. You know what? Don't do it. It's it's yeah. Uh, it's dangerous. The numbers are on the so, uh, speedometer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. But yeah. uh, it may be limited to that. But anyways, anyways, a. a uh, zero to sixty time. That's really not all that impressive now, which was probably okay then. Right. Uh, but top speed was good. This thing was just slick, though. I mean, if you look at a picture of a, a C type Jaguar from you know nineteen fifty one, fifty two, fifty three, uh, it's an, it's an impressive looking race car. And I, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I I didn't mean to roll over you there, man. I just also wanted to point out that a lot of historians and race enthusiasts. Uh, Trace the 1953 victories or attribute mm-hmm. those placings uh, to the disc brakes as well. Really? Oh, yeah. because they could go longer into the corners. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, yeah, so they were able to, to go a little faster, break a little later. Mm-hmm. A little okay, bit of an it. edge. Got it. Yeah. yeah, that you know what? All makes sense because uh, you know every little bit helps, and the, the aerodynamic thing was huge. In fact, so huge that 
in uh, well, in 1955 they came in with a Jaguar D type in the race. Ah, uh, yes. And the D type. Now they built 71 of these. Zero to sixty time was greatly improved. It was uh, four point seven seconds, which is respectable even now. That's very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, top speed was way up. One hundred and seventy nine was the top speed. Mm-hmm. But the biggest thing about the D type, and if you look at it again, take a look online for the D type. Extremely aerodynamic, you know, streamlined design. It was built to be slippery. It was mm-hmm. built to be quick. And and. Here's one of the most – maybe one of the most interesting things I got out of this whole article, I think. What's that? Uh, because we have an entire article about the D-type. We have an article about the C-type and just Jaguar cars in general. Uh, the D-type article mentions that um, you know, the engineers realized that – you know, and we talked about the aerodynamicist. I'm having a hard time with that word, but uh, yeah. Malcolm Sayer. Um, he decided that you know, here's this, this – course that we're trying to win at, this Le Mans course. And we're focused on this. They raced another series too, but or other circuits, but um, it is an 8.38 mile course, the one that they were running at the time. I don't know how this has changed over the years. I'll have to dig into that. But yeah. um, at the time, it was an 8.38 mile circuit. So it's a long, long course, and it still is very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had something they call the Mulsanne Strait, which is still there. I don't know if it's quite as long as it used to be. Um, at the time, the Mulsanne Strait was three and a half miles long. So you're talking about a three and a half mile full out, full throttle, you know, just, just a, a shot all the way down and you can yeah. get incredible speed. So you're maxing out, right? Mm-hmm. That, that to him said that aerodynamics of a car are critical. Or they're key. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you, if you figure out the percentage of this, that means that the Mulsanne straight is 48% of the lap of each lap of the race. So that means the other 52% you know, the other cars that were maybe a little bit faster in the turns, which you were saying that maybe the, the, the disc brakes helped. helped yeah. But uh, some of the other cars that were maybe quicker on the acceleration or um, could go deeper into the turns, they didn't have quite as much advantage as someone who could go 48% of the race full out and, and still be very efficient. You know, they didn't have to stop for fuels often if they had a more efficient design. Right, less slippery, drag. Less drag. And, uh, I mean, three and a half miles of just flat-out speed – Mm-hmm. Man, that's amazing. But you know, to figure out that it's forty eight percent of the race uh, in in that one straight, that's incredible to think. Like, well, I, I just I just don't know if I would have thought of it that way. Yeah, it's there's definitely a an objectivity to that mm-hmm. that's in its own way innovative. Yeah, it is. You I know? think I think it's really cool to sit down and just figure that out. Like, how important is this straight to us? Right. Yeah. What is what is the ratio? What is the cost and benefit of modifying the vehicle to perform on this part of the track? Even if it may give us some perceived disadvantages mm-hmm. on other parts. And that's, that's the, I almost said game they played, but, uh, this wasn't a game by any means. Actually, well, before we go on, mm-hmm. uh, to 1956 uh, and 57, I wanted to, uh, mention the difficulties. There were some personal difficulties in 1955 for that race. Mm-hmm. Uh, this race, uh, ah, yes. as we know, uh, there was a, an enormous accident uh, which caused the death of – the numbers that I found are 80 spectators. Yeah, yeah um, something like that. And then additionally, the the uh, son of Sir William, that was John Lyons, uh, unfortunately had a fatal car accident on the way to the circuit. Really? Yeah, on the way to the race. He, oh, I didn't know that. 25 years old. Now, was the I think it was a Mercedes car that wrecked – in uh, in 1955, right? That was yeah, the, in the uh, pit. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't a Jaguar. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Oh my gosh, it was a. Uh, you know, you can watch video of that accident. Mm-hmm. It's horrific. 
um, you yeah. see the car go into the crowd, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not—it's black and it's older black and white film than I saw, and um, it's not quite as gory as you might think. But um, you know, because they they stayed away from that, they were mm-hmm. they were not quite like today's media that would jump on the, you know those shots. Right. But, um, it's different. It was covered in a different way, but you can you can watch it and see and just get a feel for what really was going down at the time. And that's that's precisely why I mention it. I know I'm being kind of a downer with it, but one thing we need to keep in mind whenever we talk about these sorts of golden ages of racing mm-hmm. is that it seems incredibly glorious and there's so much brilliance uh, among the teams and the engineers, but this is also incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's I I would argue that it is much more dangerous uh, back then. Oh, definitely. It was much more dangerous back then. It's still me. dangerous. You still have driver deaths. You still mm-hmm. have um, accidents that injure crowd, uh, but nothing like what happened in 1955. Nothing like what happened to in the Formula One series in the 1960s. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's just it's it's gotten dramatically safer. Yeah, and it's it's funny. People can check out our podcast on racing safety. Actually, yeah, exactly. We've talked about this very recently, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot more information there. So, all you young whippersnappers who are rolling your eyes when we're talking about eight seconds for zero to sixty, and if you think the numbers aren't high enough or extreme enough, uh, got to tell you some of the most amazing innovations in racing have been safety based rather than performance based. Correct. Correct. Very good. Okay, sorry. That's yeah, no a sidebar. Problem. Not a problem at all. Yeah, you know what? I've got you know, of course, in '56 and '57, there were other victories for the uh, for the D type as well in right. Lama. And uh, do you have stats for that, or do you want to uh, do you want to just go on to the 1980s? Uh, just to say, the drivers uh, both uh, both years for '57 and '56. Uh, that was Ron Flockhart and then uh, Ninian. Ninian Sanderson, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, <laughs> uh, was in 56. And then Ivor Boeb, Ivor Bobe. Let's go with Bobe. I like the way that sounds. Ivor yeah. Bobe uh, in 1957. Okay. And uh, the average speed there increased uh, by 10 miles. It was one, 104 miles per hour in 56. And next year it was 114. Averaged over 24 hours. That's pretty good. Yeah, the That's stakes are rising awful yeah. darn fast. Yeah. Okay. All so. right. So there was a uh, there's a long gap in racing history because uh, you know they just for a short while just gave it up. Yep. Um, they proved themselves in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Uh, they moved on to making better and and um, I guess more reliable, more efficient, more you know the better designed, just very stylistic cars. Uh, and moving into a luxurious yeah uh, ca- rate kind of model just. Uh, just a way to say, a simple way to say it. They just concentrated on the road cars for a long, long time. They concentrated mm-hmm. on the road cars, and they came back to Le Mans in 1988, mm-hmm. and uh, they actually had Le Mans victories. Uh, I'm sorry, they came back a little before that, but in 1988 they um, had another victory. Yeah, with uh, Jan Lammers. Yeah, right. I think it's Jan. Jan. Oh, oh yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Look at me. Uh, that's no problem. No yeah, problem. Jan Lammers. Uh, he he came out. Uh, I've got a quotation from driving him, a actually. Jaguar. Uh, Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> jazz, jazz. Uh, okay, so uh, he said the uh, Porsche curves, which are uh, the corners near the end of the lap mm-hmm. on Le Mans. Uh, he said there were revelation in this era. It's one of the best sections of the track, and I couldn't believe how good the Jaguar was through there. Uh, turning into the right hander, it's a case of smashing it down a gear or two. 
dabbing the brakes, then nailing the throttle to the next left. In in the Jaguar, you just kept your foot flat. And so it says a lot about the handling. Oh, it sure does. Yeah, Yeah, tremendous handling of the car. Um, So in 1988, the reason that they jumped back into uh, this factory backing, because that's the the 88 victory was a uh, factory backed um, effort. And mm-hmm. that was, and the reason that they did that is because there were so many successes in 1987 in the European sports car series that people were having with, again, privateer teams racing Jaguars. Oh yeah, we should say that. When we, when we talk about the gap in competition, we're talking about the factory team. Mm-hmm. There were privateers throughout that gap. Correct. Yeah, yeah. There's, it wasn't like they were completely absent. Right. Uh, we're talking about factory back teams and 88 is where they came back, uh, kind of with a roar here because, um, you know, they had the Le Mans victory and then in 1990, another victory. Mm-hmm. And these are all coming on the heels of, you know, these, these European sports car races were, again, mm-hmm. highly successful team, you know, teams and, and vehicles that had competed in this, in the series. And, uh, you know, the, the factory said, you know what, we need to, we need to get back into this. Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. And they, uh, did it with, uh, quite a bit of style. These days we might say swagger. Yeah. And you know what's going on at the time too? And this had to have been utmost distraction. In 1989, if you recall, Ford bought Jaguar. It was late in the year. Yep. It cost him about two and a half billion dollars, but, uh, Ford purchased Jaguar in 1989. And, uh, it wasn't, Let's see. Man, it wasn't until about 1999 uh, when they uh, they kind of well, they tested the waters a little bit with their uh, Formula One team, yeah. uh, using the Jag using well using the Jaguar as their platform. Um, so by 2000, I mean we're talking just a year later, mm-hmm. uh, Ford renamed what they called the Stewart Grand Prix team. Uh, for Jackie Stewart. Yeah. Uh, they renamed it, uh, the Jaguar Racing Team. So if, you know, officially Jaguar's back into Formula One in the year 2000. And, uh, honestly, Ben, they had five seasons in F1. Mm-hmm. Not so good, really. Um, there's stats on, you know, where they finished between the, in the years 2000 through 2004. So they had five seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't turn out so well. And eventually the Jaguar team was sold to the Red Bull team. Uh, Red Bull owner, which is now Red Bull Racing. Right. And, yeah. um, I don't know. J- recently, uh, very little Jaguar racing news has come out. So, um, you know, with the sale to, uh, the Red Bull team, we know that that was the Jaguar team, but it is no longer. And, uh, honestly, there's just not a whole lot going on right now. Right. For Jaguar and racing. I know there are privateer teams that are all over the place. And, you know, I, I understand that. But as far as factory back teams, they're just not right there. Which I think is a crying shame because if I, I hope that listeners near a computer take some time. If you haven't checked out just some of the beautiful images of these vehicles, please do yourself a favor. It's not even for me. It's mm-hmm. for you guys. Because <laughs> I, I How spe- selfless. Yeah. I know, yeah. How altruistic. Yeah. Uh, because I'll tell you one thing I do love about this job is that – I, as long as I don't overdo it, I do get paid to look at pictures of beautiful cars. Oh, yeah. And you know what? We've got, I mean, as far as you're mentioning, you know, if you want to check out the cars. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, 
go to HowStuffWorks.com because we've got – I just printed it out here. We've got mm-hmm. nine pages on the C-type. We've got nine pages on the D-type along with photographs mm-hmm. and a detailed history of what's going on because you know how we have to – we have to skip a lot of the, the little minutia that we just can't cover in this podcast. Yeah. So um, it's worthwhile to to take a look at both of those articles, the Jaguar C-type and Jaguar mm-hmm. D-type articles that we have on our site. And, and uh, uh, you know, those link to other – Jaguar interest articles that you might want to check out too. Yeah, we've got a uh, D-type uh, D-type race breakdown for uh, the winning years we we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You can find some pretty cool details on there. Oh, perfect! And you know what I like to do? I like to take some of that information. I, I and you know, even if it's not there, I like to go somewhere else and find photos of that event. Maybe yeah, like seeing the Jaguar cross the line or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever whatever was happening at that time i like to go take a look at all everything happening around it as well mm-hmm. kind of a uh, a starter point God, now um, I have car in the again <laughs> you know what i've got one more quick thing that we should mention here because yes. um here's this this tie in remember i mentioned in 89 they were acquired by jaguar's acquired by ford yes uh it's no longer owned by ford and that's relatively recent mm-hmm. uh the ford motor company in 2002 uh, came up with something that, uh, that they called the Jaguar Land Rover Company, as right, ja- just yeah. Jaguar Land Rover, JLR. And they, the reason behind that was they just wanted to manage the businesses of Jaguar and Land Rover, which they had purchased Land Rover from BMW back in the year 2000. Of course, they owned, um, you know, Jaguar from 1989. So in 2002, they set up this, this merger where it was just Jaguar Land Rover together. And it seemed easier to control it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, Jaguar Land Rover later was sold to uh, sold from Ford to get this Ben Tata Motor Company, you know the Indian yeah. company. <laughs> yes, I in, was wondering if you were going to say that. In 2008, it's an Indian-owned company now. Mm-hmm. Um, Tata Motors, who make the uh, the Nano, right? The world's cheapest uh, car that you can buy new, at least. Sure, most inexpensive. Okay, you want me to say it that way? That's that's <laughs> you know, much, that's much more flattering. I I see do, that's my corporate line. I got to say it. No, you're right. Okay, the reason I say that, I I don't mean to cast dispersion on the vehicle, but I will, as I said before, when we talked about that motor company and that particular vehicle, the thing about the Nano is that below a certain price point, you have to make some some very uh, sticky decisions mm-hmm. about what kind of safety equipment you're going to include in a vehicle. Sure, if you're not going to spend the rupees, you're not going to get the uh, you're not going to get mm-hmm. the value. That's all I'm going to say about it. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Uh, did I say that right? You're not going to get the quality, maybe. Yeah. You spend a few more rupees, mm-hmm. you're going to get it. Yeah, and uh, not that you know those cars are changing the world. I'm just saying that if I had a choice, I would save up a little more, uh, and I hope that they're not carrying that same sort of design aesthetic to the Jaguar. Because it would hurt my feelings. <laughs> They're going to rebadge a Nano with a uh, oh, they could use the uh, the leaping uh, hood ornament. This is funny to you. Yeah, they, it is funny to me because you know they've got that leaper hood ornament that they've had. You know that that chrome uh, Jaguar that's yeah, on the yeah. hood, which is so awesome looking. Yes, can you imagine that on the front of a, a Nano? I'm tearing up, man. I'm going to get that single tear going down my cheek. <laughs> oh, you're, yeah, okay. you're, you're playing with my emotions. All right, all right. All I, right. I, I think I'm uh, wrapped up with my stuff here. Yeah, let's wrap it up while I can still hold it together. Sure. But um, So this is part of the long storied history of the Jaguar. We hope that you found some interesting facts in here. Uh, we do hope that you'll check out our website if you'd like to learn more stuff. And do you want to hear about a different car, different racing history? 
uh, anything vehicle related, really, you can drop us a line at Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can hit Scott and I up on our website, or you can email us directly at carstuff at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.